Hey there, good people in crypto land. I'm Matt Lysing, and this is my podcast, Decent People. Welcome back to the conversation. On the show today, I have Andy Bromberg. He is the CEO of ECO, uh, which is a decentralized financial uh, startup. And one of the products that they have come out with recently is called Beam, which is a completely decentralized wallet uh, infrastructure that is using account abstraction. Uh, we get into that and about how that's a terrible name for basically what is something that is a crypto wallet that's based on smart contracts um, rather than the old kind of non-custodial wallets that uh, just kind of live on a blockchain address. So with a smart contract based wallet, you can do all sorts of new stuff. Uh, it's much more flexible and uh, uh, you can build on top of it in ways that you couldn't do um, with a wallet previously. Uh, it's also easier for to recover your seed phrase and to um, just kind of manage your account, uh, which can be very stressful with this sort of non-custodial wallet. We also talked about Andy's time at Stanford. Uh, he was a student of Balaji Srinivasanan uh, and was one of the folks who started the Stanford Bitcoin group. Um, if you're a fan of this show, you might remember uh, we had Ryan Breslow on. Uh, he was uh, one of those students as well. Andy goes way back. Uh, he did that in 2013. Uh, we talked about also the sort of foundational building blocks that are being um, released uh, lately in the, in the industry and, and how um, some of those things like account abstraction, uh, multi-party compute, and uh, others are really laying a foundation for uh, hopefully huge advances to come in what um, blockchain protocols and, and apps can do. So with all that out of the way, let's get to the conversation. Uh, thanks for being here as always, and I hope you enjoy it. Hey, Andy, how you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I've been um, wanting to have this conversation because uh, finally I've got somebody on the line who uh, is really deep into account abstraction, uh, the new wallet sort of standard um, on Ethereum. And, and so I'm, I'm excited about that. Um, uh, but first of all, I thought uh, we talk about, um, you know, we write a newsletter every week at Decentral and I was just putting ours together and there are a couple of stories on um, central bank digital currencies that we were highlighting. Um, so I thought as someone who's like deep into payments as you are um, at Echo and now at Beam, um, I, I would really love your take on, on what you think about CBDCs because um, the, the two stories that kind of caught my eye this week is, is uh, one in China they're now um, allowing tourists to use MasterCard or Visa to load a digital wallet with their um, central bank digital currency, the ECNY, right? That, that's also on, that's on top of, you know, the, the pilot program that's been going on for a while in China where they're using, um, you know, a digital currency issued by the state. Um, the issue here, of course, for me, like just if people don't know, is like it's you can track everything you're doing. Every transaction is known to the government, what you're purchasing and, and all that stuff. So it's like for a surveillance state, you know, it's like a wet dream. So um, there's that aspect to it that I find really troubling. Um, and then in the United States, the other story that I was looking at was that um, a congressman has introduced a bill that would um, ban the Fed in the U.S. from even exploring a central bank digital currency, like a digital dollar. Um, so I, I kind of found that kind of heartening. But I, I thought we could just kind of jump into that because I think that's a really interesting, uh, 
use case. Uh, it's kind of more of a one, more troubling ones in my opinion, but um, I'm sure you must have had thoughts about this over, over the years. So I was just curious, like where you come down on all that stuff. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. You know, I think for me, it the, the idea of a CBDC is, from my perspective, somewhat inevitable that governments are going to want to you know, do things like this and, and have increased surveillance and increased control and increased ability to act directly on uh, citizens' wallets and all of that. And there's certainly kind of a, a wide-ranging field of views here, whether they're, they're good or bad and what the trade-offs are. But I think ultimately my perspective is that it's, it's inevitable. And I, I find it very unlikely that around the world governments are simply going to choose not to do this. Uh, that doesn't seem seem likely to me, but it, it fits into a broader trend, I think, of uh, of competitive currencies. I think there's, there's a view here that historically, uh, currencies have been effectively kind of local monopolies, right? If you're in the United yeah. States, you're going to be paying with dollars. If you're in the, in the Eurozone, you're going to be paying with euros. Uh, if you're in China, you're going to be paying with yuan. Um, and that's all that's all well and good, but over the past decade, I would say that two, two big things have happened. One, obviously the rise of, of crypto and, and the ideologies and ideas around that, but also just the rise of kind of seamless digital payments, the ability to exchange value digitally really easily. And I think those two things create the preconditions for a world of competitive currencies where people are actually more actively choosing uh, which currency they want to hold, which currency they want to pay with. Um, and, and you're seeing signs of this already. You know, there's lots of places around the world where the currency, uh, the national currency is, you know, going through inflation right now or is not particularly reliable. And so people in those places actually want to hold a different currency. And they're able to as a result of stable coins. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Nigeria is a great example of this, right? In, in Nigeria, the Naira has been, been quite inflationary uh, and people actually are holding dollar stable coins, Tether or USDC, Um and using them because because that's better. And so, to take it back to your question, I think C- CBDCs are are inevitable. But I also think we're entering a world where people are actually going to have more individual control over what currencies they want to use, whether that's a CBDC or a stablecoin or new independent currencies or anything else. And I think for me, that's the big trend to watch for. I think the the fight against CBDCs stopping governments from issuing them is is a kind of a futile one. Yeah, but, it's going to be uh, inevitable in your opinion. It's inevitable, but I think the people on an individual level can can make choices around that. Do you think it could be bifurcated where maybe the international settlements, you know, banking system um, is, is sort of all digital where countries are sending money to each other, but then on a retail basis, like if I'm, well, I guess I, I would always have a choice, right? Not to use a government issued stable coin, but um it sounds like you think it's just it's going to be all kind of one and the same. Well, yeah, I think it'll 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 vary, and, and I think people will make their own choices. It, it might be really hard, you know. There's there's a world where certain CBDCs are you know mandatory for people to get paid in, right? Maybe employers in in China are required to pay people in, you know, uh, the 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 yuan CNBC, CBDC, and. If that's the case, then maybe there's really strong capital controls on them and, and those can't be transferred and exchanged for other other currencies. And so it, so it might be really hard. But yeah, I do think at the end of the day, you know, every government will end up making a push for this because it is, you know, governments rarely uh, choose opportunities to give up power. And uh, and this is certainly a way to, to consolidate more. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's, I mean, and also the efficiencies gained in that whole system is, is not 
it's hard to ignore that, right? Um, That's right. It, you know, we've got God knows how sometimes how long it takes sometimes to send you know wires overseas, and then there's still a two day settlement period in the United States. Um, I think, yeah, I guess where I come down on is I'm I'm all in favor of of like private issuers like Circle issuing U.S. dollar coin or you know even Tether, which I've I've had my ups and downs with over the years. <laughs> um, mm-hmm which I find fa- fascinating that it's still around and uh, it seems to be uh, sort of legit. Um, but let's dive in a little bit. Um, t- tell me about Eco and, and what you guys started there and then how that um, sort of, I guess there, there, it sounds like there was a bit of an evolution into Beam, what you guys are doing now, which is a, a non-custodial wallet uh, in, the, in the parlance of the terms, which, which we should get into because I hate the terminology in this discussion and I wish somebody <laughs> would do something about it. I think it's a real barrier. Um, but anyway, tell me, tell me about Eco and what, what yeah. the, the, the plan was there. I agree. The terminology needs some work. Um, Eco's plan was and, and actually remains the same at the highest level. Um, and it fits really nicely into where you started this conversation. Incidentally, Eco is, as a project, is trying to build um, a, a new and better uh, competitive and decentralized currency, one that is internet native um, and more more aligned with its users. And it, it you know, f- from my perspective, what the space has seen, crypto space has seen in terms of assets has been that things have fallen in, in one of two categories. Either you have assets like Bitcoin and Ethereum, which are really independent from existing currencies, right? Totally independent from from existing fiat currencies, but not particularly usable for transactional use cases. They're too volatile and and have deficiencies that make them not particularly useful for for daily payments. And then on the other hand, you've got stable coins like USDC or Tether, and those are extremely useful for uh, transactional day-to-day payments, but uh, but are not independent. They're pegged to existing currencies and backed by existing currencies. And um, Eco asked the question, well, what would it look like to have something that falls in the middle that is um, both independent from existing currencies, but also useful transactionally? Um, and it's governed by its own monetary policy and its own own governance system and is, is decentralized. And we can talk way more about that and, and why I think it's important. But at a high level, I do believe that in this world of competitive currencies, uh, independent ones like ECO are, are critical. What we realized along the way in supporting the growth of this network is, well, there need to be products that people can use to adopt this. It's not it's not enough to support just the idea of a decentralized currency. There actually needs to be products for people to use it. And so we launched this product called Beam, um, which is effectively on-chain Venmo, a really simple global peer-to-peer payment product um, where users you know, own their own own their own keys and are in full control of their money. Um, and that that product supports stable coins and it also supports the eco currency itself. And so users can pay anyone instantly anywhere in the world for very low fees uh, seamlessly. And, and from my perspective, it's really one of the first truly mainstream usable uh, self-custody crypto products. And we're just trying to build that out and support it as an individual product and then also leveraging it to support the growth of the, the overall eco currency and, and working on a bunch of other things too, but that's it's all under the, the umbrella of trying to support this decentralized currency. Okay. And um, <clears throat> I was interested, interested to learn that uh, at eco, you guys were custodying assets, uh, I believe. I've got that right. And but you kind of uh, over time realized that that's a really tough thing to do um, in the regulatory environment in the United States, for example, right now. Um, can, can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So up until recently, um, Eco Inc., which is the company that I, that I run, 
uh, was was building two products. One was this Beam product that I just mentioned. The other was called the Eco App, and it was a uh, custodial uh, consumer fintech product just in the U.S., um, offering people kind of a replacement for their their bank, um, and intended to eventually serve as an on ramp to the crypto space and to the Eco currency. But what we found was that um, you know two, basically two things happened at once. One was a challenge, and one was an opportunity. And the challenge was that over the course of this year, the environment in the U.S for offering custodial services that relate in any way to crypto got really challenging. Um, and, you know, a great example of this is, is Revolut. So Revolut, you know, is a multi-decacorn neobank. And this year they've decided to stop offering crypto trading services, Bitcoin, Ethereum in the United States, because their partner financial institutions just said, hey, with the, the uncertainty, we can't, can't really support this anymore. And so they're winding down that service. And so we made the challenging decision to wind down the eco app, this custodial product in the U.S. that um, that was was offering this kind of on ramp to to crypto in the long run, but the other thing that happened was a huge opportunity, and and that's what led to the creation of Beam. And you mentioned it kind of up front in, in this in this interview, um, which is that a bunch of technology has been created in the last nine months or so, or, or productionized in the last nine months or so, that allows for truly mainstream usable self custody products like Beam. The biggest of which I would say is, is this account abstraction technology that we can talk more about. And I think finally, you know, this 15-year vision of, you know, peer-to-peer electronic cash system can be, can be realized um, through a bunch of the innovation that's happened over the last year or so. And so we were looking at it and saying, well, the, the environment in the U.S. is really hard for anything custodial crypto. At the same time, we're seeing this opportunity we've been waiting for for years to build self-custody products, which I think is really at the heart of what crypto is all about, putting people back in full control of their money. And let's double down on that. And let's really focus on building these these products on top of this new technology. Yeah. The, on the custodian side or custodial side of this, um, is this hard for like little guys to break into this? Because it seems like the BNY Mellons of the world and maybe JP Morgans um, are offering crypto custodial services to their clients. But obviously you know, their billion dollar, you know, global banks. Um, is that an issue there or, or do you think they're feeling the pinch as well? I think everyone's feeling the pinch at, at some level. Um, and I think what's particularly challenging is that a lot of the the little guys are actually like Eco Inc. Um, they're not banks themselves, right? So Revolut uh, works with partner financial institutions in the United States, as did the Eco app um, and as did many of these products. And it's those partner financial institutions that are increasingly uncomfortable with supporting crypto as a result of this U.S. regulatory climate. They want to support it, um, and they want to support innovation in the space. And, and you know, they're they're amazing partners. But just given the environment, they're having a really tough time. And so, I think the entities that are banks themselves have a little bit more independence in their decision making and, and risk tolerance here. But companies like pretty much every consumer fintech product in the U.S. Um, who work with partner financial institutions are finding it much harder. Yeah, and is that sort of what's been dubbed uh, Operation Choke Point 2.0? Where yeah, the, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, I think that whatever whatever that is, and, and whether that's you know exactly as it's been advertised, that is I think the core of the the issue that's plaguing these partner financial institutions. Right, because their regulators are coming to them and not so subtly saying, "Look, if you keep this up, you know we're going to come down on you." And that's so exactly right. Yeah, they know where to squeeze um, to cut that stuff off. Um, okay, cool. So. The Eco app was a custodial app. Um, now Beam is non-custodial, and this is where we're now we're getting into the terminology that I really don't like. Um, mm-hmm. I wish it was just 
somebody could just call it a wallet. Everybody knows what a wallet is. It's where you keep your money. Yeah. Um, but t- tell us about um, the non-custodial part of Beam and maybe we can start talking about account abstraction a little bit and just sort of like chip away at that because it's a, I think it's a, a very important concept, but it's also kind of uh, tricky to wrap your head around. Yeah, absolutely. So um, custodial versus non-custodial. When we use those terms, I think in the space, what we're referring to is that if a product is custodial, your money is being held by someone else who has access to your funds. So a canonical example of a kind of custodial product, ignore crypto for a minute, is a bank. Or right, when you deposit money in a bank, the bank has your money and, and the bank can can move your money if they, if they so desire. Um, and a non-custodial product, and this is somewhat confusing, but just to, to say it in case listeners aren't aware, um, non-custodial is also sometimes called self-custodial. So yeah. non-custodial and self-custodial are synonyms, which is very confusing. And the antonym is custodial. Um, and these, these kind of non-custodial or self-custodial products are products where, uh, you know, your funds, your balance of your funds are recorded on a blockchain, say on the Bitcoin blockchain or Ethereum blockchain, and only you have access to move those funds. So there's no other institution that can move your funds, no other entity that can move your funds. Yeah. And, um, and that I think is really important because it reduces the trust. You know, if you, if you look at a lot of the failures over the last year that are kind of dubbed crypto failures, they're actually failures of centralized institutions. So FTX, Genesis, BlockFi, Celsius, Voyager, all of these failures where people lost money. Well, they were actually failures of centralized institutions because you were handing your funds to someone else who could then do bad things with them. Yeah. Um, and these self-custodial or non-custodial products, that's simply not possible. Only you have access to your funds. No one else can take them from you. And that's the the kind of formula that that Beam follows as a product. And I, I think it's really, you know, about all what the space is all about. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and then, but the drawback here is that because you're in control of your uh, <clears throat> your wallet, your non-custodial wallet, you know, you've got your private key, your, your public key. If If your private key gets compromised, you lose it. Um, you, you know, you're screwed, right? You're either going to have your money stolen or there's just, it's just going to be frozen there. And so that's always been, I think, a big barrier to entry for a lot of folks um, to, to have to take on that kind of responsibility. And that's where another great name here, the account abstraction comes in. And this is totally what happens when you let engineers and developers name things. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, come on, let's get a PR team together. Um, so the, Tell me a little bit about account abstraction and, and what is different about that um, compared to a non-custodial wallet. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I think there's a couple of things here. The, the first thing I would say is that there is technology, account abstraction and otherwise, that allows for the management of those keys to be much easier. So for example, with, um, with Beam, um, when, you, when you sign into, when you go to beam.eco, you instantly have a non-custodial wallet and the, and the key for that wallet is stored in your browser. But then if you want to, if you want to save access to that so you can open on another computer or access it if you lose your phone or anything like that, you can actually go in and, and sign in with your Twitter account, pursue other authorization options to add a password, and your private key gets effectively saved in that way. And so then you no longer are responsible for this kind of string private key. You're, all you need to do is be able to log in with Twitter and remember your password. And that happens actually not through account abstraction, but through a different piece of technology called uh, MPC or multi-party computation. And effectively what that means at a really high level is that that private key that gives you access to your funds gets broken up into pieces 
and different pieces are put in different places. One piece is, uh, you know, put somewhere relating to your Twitter account. One piece is kind of generated in part through a password you enter. You can break it up into an arbitrary number of pieces and reclaim access. And so, you know, there's a bunch of great companies working on this right now. Um, uh, Web3 Auth, Privy, uh, Fund.xyz, a bunch of amazing companies uh, doing work to make the management of keys much easier. Um, so that's really important. That's even before you get to account abstraction, which which I can certainly dive into if that's, yeah, no, that's, that's helpful. So it's basically like the horcruxes for Voldemort's soul, right? It's broken up and hidden or in different places. I love that. <laughs> that's exactly um, right. Yeah. So, okay. But another thing that we should kind of touch on here is that uh, a non-custodial wallet is, it doesn't have much utility. It's really just a place to store, you know, an NFT or your coin, you know, whatever uh, assets you have. Right. And, and so one of the innovations with account abstraction is now the wallet is actually a smart contract. Um, right. Can, can we talk about that a little bit? And what, what does that allow you to do that you, you can't do with a, a non-custodial wallet? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, account abstraction wallets are still in the category of non-custodial wallets, but there's a big a big gap here. And uh, and the, uh, the analogy I like to use is that it's as if uh, we're looking at the move from flip phones to smartphones. So when it was just flip phones, uh, Effectively, all you could do, I'm simplifying a little bit here, but effectively all you could do was send text, receive texts, make calls. That was it. And then we got to smartphones, and with smartphones, um, we could then run arbitrary code. We could then run apps, and that massively expanded the capacity of kind of what you could do on your phone, the world of possibilities of what you could do on your phone. And account abstraction is, is effectively an upgrade to the Ethereum protocol and, and other protocols that looks very similar to that. Um, historically, uh, user wallets, non-custodial wallets, all they could do was, like you said, basically sign and send transactions. That was it. You could send money, you could hold money, you could interact with other things, but you couldn't actually run any code on the wallet itself. Mm-hmm. And with this account abstraction technology, it's, it's done sort of a smartphone upgrade to user wallets, where now the wallet that a user has, this non-custodial wallet, can, can run code. And just like with the app store and smartphones, that creates a huge universe of, of possibilities for the ways that you can improve the user experience. I'll give you just one as an example. Historically, with these kind of flip phone style wallets, which is how Ethereum wallets used to be, if you wanted to send any money, any, any token to anyone, you needed to have Ethereum tokens, Ether tokens in your wallet to pay for the transaction fees. Mm-hmm. So if I had... USDC, a stablecoin in my wallet, I needed to have Ether in my wallet to pay for the transaction fees. And this is a huge barrier for mainstream consumers. It's like saying to someone, you know, oh, if you want to pay in dollars, you also have to have euros in your wallet to pay for the fee on the dollar transaction. It doesn't really make any sense. Um, and so, well, we might be used to it as, as kind of people that are used to crypto um, paradigms. That was very abnormal for, for mainstream users. Account abstraction does things like allowing you to, to run code on your wallet um, that uh, allows someone else to pay the transaction fee in Ethereum, in Ether, for your transaction. So you can set it up so that when I want to send USDC from a kind of account abstraction smart contract wallet, I send the USDC to the recipient. I also send a little bit of USDC to someone else who then sponsors the Ether required for my transaction. Mm. And they're compensated by the USDC. So all of a sudden you can have user wallets that never have any Ether in them that just have USDC or whatever the person wants to 
receive and send. Um, and that can make it much, much easier. And that's just one of the things that you can do with with this account abstraction technology. Yeah, that's great. And is this where Visa comes in as well? Because they've, they're now offering, like, you can pay gas fees with your Visa card. It, yeah, they've, they've put out some proof. Is that because of account abstraction? Yeah, exactly. They, okay. They've put out some proof of concepts on this, but that's basically, they're, they're, they're now allowing in these proof of concepts user wallets to not need to have Ether in the wallet and instead, you know, pay with a, an external source. Right. Yeah, because like the other point here is, um, I guess if you're, doing a lot of transactions or you're maybe doing automated transactions, you can run out of Ether and then their whole scheme, you know, fails, right? Because you don't have anything to pay for transactions with. Yeah, I was talking to someone about this. They had a great analogy for it that, you know, if you if you send someone USDC to a new wallet, a wallet that's never had uh, any anything in it before, that's a little bit like delivering a car to someone's house with no gas in the tank. <laughs> like you, they, the person can't send it if it's a normal Ethereum wallet because there's no, they have no Ether. Now with these smart contract wallets and account abstraction, that person could actually be able to, if it was a smart contract wallet, be able to send that USDC out um, even if they don't have, have Ether in their wallet. Yeah. Um, well, let's go back a little bit to into your, your past. Um, I noted um, you were in the Stanford Bitcoin group in uh, 2013, very early. So congrats on that. Um, I went to Cal, so I'll have to forgive mm. you for going yeah. to Stanford. But we'll I let think, that go. Yeah, we'll let that go. Um, what, so you were, that's, that's very, you know, obviously Bitcoin had been around a little while, but um, not too long. What, were you always um, into technology and like, was that just something that came across your radar naturally? Uh, you know, it was, it was not, I got very lucky when I got to Stanford, I had this professor, um, named Balaji Srinivasan, who, um, was a professor at Stanford, but then went on to be a uh, general partner at Andreessen Horowitz. He founded Earn.com, which sold to Coinbase. He was Coinbase's CTO and, uh, and now he's, he's doing all sorts of things and yeah, investing in projects. Yeah, if you know who is and you're listening to this podcast, I want you to just turn it off right now. <laughs> I, I agree. You're better to listen to him than, than to me. Uh, so go listen to some, some, some Balaji podcasts, um, but yeah, he was, he was my professor at the time and I took a class taught by him. And um, after the class, he convinced a group of us, about seven of us, to, uh, to start the Stanford Bitcoin group. And he was pounding the table. This was 2012, pounding the table saying Bitcoin is going to be this huge thing. It was going to really matter. And like you said, this was, this was pretty early. I mean, not the, the earliest, earliest days, but, but pretty early. And I think we were a little bit skeptical, but the more we dug in, the more time we spent with him, the more we realized this is going to be a really big deal. And so yeah, we started the Stanford Bitcoin group, did a bunch of really interesting academic research and advocacy work and built some cool projects. And, uh, and yeah, I just got, got super fortunate to, to have him as a, as a professor. Was um, Ryan Breslow in that group? He was also in that group. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, I had him on the podcast and we talked about that. And he, he you know, same way, he's just gushing about Balaji and how amazing it was to have him like in his life, you know, and just like as a resource. Um, oh yeah, incredible resource, incredible mentor. And yeah, we owe him a lot for, for getting us into uh, into the space. So what, okay, so you were skeptical at first um, uh, with the group, but what sort of turned you around or what was that um, What was that like? You know, I think it was really just digging in and, and realizing how interesting this piece of technology was and, and how big an opportunity it was. And then something happened in... I forget if it was late 2012 or early 2013, um, but the, the Cyprus economy collapsed. Hmm. Um, and this was a really interesting moment for, I think, a lot of, of early, early Bitcoiners um, where, uh, you know, the government took a haircut out of people's bank accounts. Um, 
the Cypriot economy blew up and the government, you know, actually took money out of people's bank accounts. And, and that was a moment where all of a sudden you're sitting there as an early, you know, kind of Bitcoin adopter and saying, wow, Bitcoin actually prevents this. And it goes right back to what we were talking about earlier about custodial versus non-custodial products. Mm -hmm. If, if your money is custodial, if people are, if someone else is holding your money for you, you are, you could potentially fall victim to something ranging from, you know, the implosion of FTX, you know, an, an exchange that has your funds and, and does something it shouldn't have with your funds to even just a government taking money out of your account if you live in Cyprus in 2012. And uh, and if you're holding funds in a non-custodial or self-custodial way, something like Beam or just any self-custody wallet, that's actually not possible. Uh, and so I think that was a big wake-up moment for a lot of people who realized, wow, there's actually, there's actually some real utility here for this this concept of, of owning your own keys. And, and at that point, it was really just just Bitcoin, which was an option at that point. Right. Yeah, I was going to ask you what um, what was it like when Ethereum kind of came around and started to be talked about and then, then went live? Because it, obviously it's a huge, it's like, it, it's very similar to the flip phone to the smartphone analogy, I think. Yeah, that, that was that was a, a very similar thing. Um, yeah, it was, it was really interesting. I, I remember that. Um, and I actually remember back even before Ethereum, there was um, a concept called uh, called colored coins. Yeah. Um, and that was an even earlier implementation. It was built on top of Bitcoin that started to allow different kind of asset issuance um, on top of Bitcoin. Vitalik was working on that. Um, and we, we looked into that a bunch, dug into it, talked to a lot of the early colored coins people. And then they ended up realizing that Bitcoin was amazing as a protocol, which I, I still deeply believe, um, but was limited in certain ways that would prevent the implementation of some of the, the visions of that. And so they went off and yeah. started Ethereum. I remember talking to Vitalik about that. And he said at, at one point, he just realized he had to rewrite the whole code base. That's right. <laughs> you know, and so, okay, I'll do that, but I'll do it completely, you know, uh, from scratch. Um, yeah. So growing up was like technology a big part of your life or was the, because I mean, also running right under a lot of what we're talking about here is about like financial freedom and about um, the ways that, um, governments can or cannot impose their will on you, right? And crypto gets around a lot of those ways. Was was that um, something that you kind of grew up with in your past or where did do you think that might come from? Yeah, I was I was always really interested in technology, you know, in in high school and even back in middle school, I was running websites and doing affiliate marketing and started a marketing firm and, and um, all sorts of things like that. So I was just really interested in the internet. And I think you know, I, I feel incredibly fortunate to have grown up in a time where that technology was available and, you know, you can learn anything you want to learn. <laughs> it's at your fingertips yeah. uh, instantly. And I think that's really powerful. And so, yeah, that technology has always been a part of my, Why my did life you grow in that up? way. I grew up outside of Boston, Massachusetts. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, I spent most of my childhood there. And did you have brothers and sisters? I have a younger brother. Yeah, two years younger. Is he into tech as well? Or? Not as into tech as I am, um, but uh, but yeah, also obviously grateful for, for growing up in this, this age of, of all this technology. Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, well, that, that must've been quite a change of pace from Boston outside of Boston to Stanford and Palo Alto where yeah. it's just sunny and beautiful pretty much all, all year long. That's right. No, no scraping ice off my car anymore. Yeah. 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 So, so then, um, Okay, so yeah, you're definitely into Bitcoin. The colored coins is, is, you know, an interesting use case. But then Ethereum comes along and kind of blows all that stuff out of the water. What um, what was your plan then? Was were you thinking like 
Was, did you just know that this is where you wanted to be and, and that was kind of like your career path? Uh, yeah, I, a little bit. I, I, I actually ended up leaving school um, early and I started a company not at all in the crypto space, in the political media space called Sidewire. Mm-hmm. Um, and I ran that for a few years during the 2016 uh, election cycle and uh, and lots of learnings there. It was a really interesting experience, but I did deeply regret leaving crypto. Um, so I was realizing, man, I, I miss this, this technology and and I really do believe it's the future. And so I ended up in 2017 um, starting a new company called CoinList, which I, I co-founded with, with several others. And it, it spun out from AngelList. Um, and, uh, and it, you know, AngelList is kind of the largest startup funding platform in the world. They do amazing work. And AngelList and, and a company called Protocol Labs, which helped create Filecoin and the IPFS decentralized storage network. Um, AngelList and Protocol Labs worked together to create this new company called CoinList. Um, which was built to um, allow issuers to conduct compliant token offerings and token sales mm-hmm. in 2017. And um, I took the reins over there and, and co-founded that with uh, several others in, in 2017. So obviously that was a huge run-up, right? Um, well, first of all, just the, the political thing intrigues me. Um, did, did you help or hurt Donald Trump in that election? <laughs> I don't I don't know that we had enough of an impact to be, be measured in any meaningful way on on the ascension of uh, Donald Trump. Okay. All right. Okay. Then then you're back into crypto in 2017, and obviously that's the the first not not the first, but I think the the, the run up that got a lot of like kind of put Bitcoin and, and um, crypto I think on a lot of people's radar for the first time when Bitcoin went over to twenty twenty thousand and ETH was this I think fourteen hundred or something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Looking at the crypto winter we're in now, like what was that run up and that cycle like for you back then, and, and how do you think things are different now? Oh, I mean, it's things things have changed so much, and, and it is interesting. By the way, if you look back at that at that run up at that point, it felt crazy and you know out of control and, and all of that. Um, yeah. But now, if you if you go back and you look at the Bitcoin price chart, you know for for all of history, that run up looks like a blip. <laughs> but yeah. but you know it's it, it, it's meaningful, but it's not not even close to the the biggest run up we've had so far. And um, it was really interesting. It was it was it was manic. I remember going to conferences in 2017, and um, and it, it was just crazy. People were you know there was so much energy in the space, so many people new showing up. Um, and now it's it's very different. I, I don't think of this as at this moment kind of it doesn't have the characteristics of a deep deep bear market. So you know really deep bear market for me was, um, you know, probably in 2019, um, certainly, certainly earlier in, uh, you know, there's like a big, a big, uh, you know, bear market even earlier than that in, in kind of 2015. Yeah, there, there was about two years where Ether was just stuck at like $120. That's right. I, I remember yeah. it was just range bound and didn't seem like anything was happening. Yeah. And even kind of late 2022. So, you know, these, these cycles happen right now. It doesn't feel like a deep deep bear market. Um, there's not a ton of new entrants to the space, but people are building, people are energized. Uh, I was just at, at the Permissionless Conference in Austin and sorry, Mainnet in New York, and um, it does not have the feeling of a, of a deep bear market at this moment. Do you Are you expecting something to pull uh, the market out of, of the sort of doldrums or how do you think? Because that's obviously been a way it's happened in the past with like NFTs and, and new interest from, from kind of new industries coming into crypto. Um, do you think that's going to happen again or what, what's your crystal ball telling you? 
Yeah, well, um, I've been in this space for 10 years now, and what my crystal ball tells me is that I'm always wrong. Uh, and so I, I, I think we have I, the same crystal ball. <laughs> hey, that's right. I caveat it with with that for sure. I, um, you know, I, t- I tend to typically be uh, short-term pessimistic about the space and long-term extremely optimistic. Um, and so I'm not, I don't necessarily think that we're, you know, moments away from from the next kind of ignition, um, although it's possible, but uh, but long-term, I'm obviously extremely excited and bullish. I, I would like to think that the next thing coming is um, truly mainstream on-chain payments. And obviously this is something that's super relevant to us, but, you know, I'm working on it for a reason. I, I really think, and I mentioned this earlier, I think, but if you go back to the Bitcoin white paper, its title is Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer electronic cash system. Mm-hmm. And the, the vision of Bitcoin was money, right? It was peer-to-peer electronic cash. And I think that now, you know, 15 years after that white paper, the technology actually exists to build that out. When I say that, I'm talking about, obviously, the you know, concept of decentralized payments created by Bitcoin, but also smart contract platform in Ethereum and uh, stable coins, which people often really want to pay with. And DeFi, which is, you know, all this foundational financial infrastructure and then rollups and L2s and much cheaper and faster transactions. And then finally, this account abstraction technology. I think we've built up over the last 15 years as an industry, a stack that will now allow on-chain payments to really flourish for the mainstream. And um, I'm optimistic that that's what what drives the next the next wave. Yeah, I think I read that you um, said something along the lines of, you know, it feels like people have been building um web browsers rather than web pages, you know? That's right. So, yeah, like you need the actual, uh, I hate the word content, but, you know, you need the actual underlying stuff for, for a web browser to work uh, or to be useful. Um, so it's interesting though, too, because at the same time, like you're saying, all these found these pieces are in place, but you guys are making a very concerted effort with Beam to make it like, easy as pie to get into this, right? You click a link and now you're set up. And so it, it, we're still at a, pay, a, a phase, I think, where, where a lot of that handholding is needed. Do you, do you feel like that way? I, I actually don't. I think if you want to get people to use the deepest parts of crypto, then absolutely. But I actually think this account abstraction technology has enabled it, you know, these products, truly self-custody products to be used without any expertise. Um, you know, I have, I have, I've said this before, but I have, I have family members who, again, have been in the space for a decade. They've, they've never used self-custody products and they did with Beam for the first time because all you have to do, one of the cool features about Beam is you can send money with a, with a link. So I can take USDC or eco-currency and create a link and text it to you or WhatsApp it to you or email it to you or, or whatever. You tap that, you instantly have that money in a wallet that's yours and you can send it right back with a link or by typing a username that's on chain and it feels just like a web two product. Um, and so I think it's actually possible to build, build products like beam. Beam is just one example. I think there's going to be many that feel like web two or even better. Um, but, but fully give you the benefits of, of owning your own keys and having control of your money. Yeah. And I, I was just going to ask you about that because I, it, I, I wanted to first ask you, well, what, how are, how are you improving on Venmo? But then it's clear, right, that you need a bank to have Venmo. And then, so it's a custody situation again that we've been talking about. But with Beam and these other um, possibilities, you're, you're still in control of your funds no matter what. That's right. Yeah, I think it's other things too. You know, Beam is global. You can pay anyone anywhere in the world. 
Venmo has geographic restrictions. Um, you know, Venmo, because it's built on the ACH rails and needs to deal with uh, fraud and reversal risk from that, has limits on you. You can only send so much money every week, so much money every day, so much money in a single transaction. Beam has no such limits. You're in, you're in full control of your money. It's also an easier onboarding path. You can simply tap a link someone sends you and you have a Beam account that you can send money from. Venmo obviously has more onboarding required. Um, yeah. And so there's all these things. Now, I still use Venmo. I, I still think it's a good product. Um, for certain use cases, but I do think that this kind of self-custodial type of product opens up a whole new array of functionality that that products like Venmo just can't can't offer. Yeah, I, I was going to say, um, talking about the newsletter again, the, another item in there this week was that Venmo is now um, it's it's now you can get the PayPal stablecoin that they came out with just a little while ago. So mm-hmm. um, while I am very much more on um, your side of the fence here with Beam and decentralized um, finance in all f- uh, ways and shapes and forms. I do think it's interesting that Venmo and PayPal and, you know, people are, are not only not ignoring this, but they're adopting it. And like, I think that says a lot. And I think that um, Beam is going to appeal to a certain group of people, but then Venmo is going to get another group of people probably, you know, uh, if they're curious about crypto or what DeFi, you know, it's a, it's not a bad place to start. Oh, no. And, and in fact, I would argue that one of the biggest problems in the space is, from a user experience perspective, is on-ramping and off-ramping. So getting mm-hmm. money from the existing financial system onto stablecoins or crypto rails and back. And PayPal is perfectly positioned to do that because they are connected so deeply into the global traditional financial system. And in fact, they've built a great on-ramping experience with their PayPal stablecoin, PYUSD. I've, I've used it, it's, it's amazing. You go into PayPal, I have my bank connected to PayPal because I've had it that way for years. And you can type in, I want 20 PayPal USD, hit buy and $20 leaves your bank account and you end up with 20 PayPal USD. Now, that PayPal USD is held in custody by PayPal but, you know, after you you kind of wait a few days, you can send it out. You can send it into a self-custodial wallet or anywhere you want, and you can truly hold that money. And so, yeah, I think PayPal is doing amazing work in the space and, and supporting innovation, on-ramping and off-ramping in a really big way. Yeah. Um, you mentioned it a few times, uh, the eco um, currency that you guys, I guess you created. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about that? And like, was it an ICO process or what, what is the, uh, how did that come to be? Yeah, um, Eco did not have an ICO. It's uh, it's kind of an independent and decentralized currency. And yeah, it's the, it, it's the original vision of, I think, a lot of what we, we've worked on for years. Um, and I, I said this up front, but I, I just think we're entering this world of competitive currencies and um, stablecoins are amazing. I, I love them. Beam supports them. I think they're incredibly useful. But I also think that people should have choices to use independent currencies, currencies that are are independent from, uh, from any individual government and, and Beam, or sorry, Eco, um, effectively replicates the model in some way. There's um, a, a set of what, what the protocol calls trustees who are elected by the holders of the currency, and they then set monetary policy for the system. So it's a little bit like if, if the Fed board was elected by U.S. dollar holders, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and they, they set independent policy. And so it's a totally independent currency with its own kind of monetary policy system, um, Governed also by this this EcoX uh, token that can bootstrap governance and capital allocation in the system and create a really cool incentive system. So yeah, it's a it's an effort to build a new and better better money. Okay, 
And did you guys ever have concerns about it being an unregistered security or anything like that? No, no. I mean, I think that a lot of these tokens out there is where we're seeing, you know, that's a big challenge and and something that, you know, is part of their models and the way that they're offered ends up being a huge issue. But, you know, the way that Eco's built these, it's it's just not a, it's not, not really a concern for it used as kind of a pure currency, pure utility of transacting with people and, and treating it as money. Yeah. It, it also strikes me that Beam is, is really, like you've said, um, a lot of these there's been a lot of innovation, a lot of technology um, just recently coming out that, that helps kind of form the different building blocks of what is needed for a service like Beam. And one of those is like roll-ups, right? And it's it's getting away from the main Ethereum chain, which can be slow and costly uh, and, and kind of doing stuff off-chain. And then, you know, so it's a much more, it's a much faster, much cheaper Um and it kind of reminds me of like we've been talked about the smartphone kind of analogy. And the thing I've heard over the years about the smartphone is that, you know, it was like four things that needed to happen. And I, I'm going to forget one of them, but, you know, there's like cloud computing. I think a GPS, you know, was a big thing. Uh, I think just obviously the iPhone itself, you know, like the, the first mm-hmm. smartphone and then something else. But the, the, all those four things just created this perfect moment where now, you could have this, you know, incredibly powerful computer in your pocket. And it reminded me, it feels like what you're kind of saying and what we're talking about is that those pieces are in place uh, so that something like, you know, an iPhone can come out now and, and sort of like take this industry uh, to the next level. I think that's exactly right. I think for for me, the, the big things in the last year that have happened is account abstraction, which we talked about, and um, the these roll-ups and, and kind of alternative L1s and LTs productionizing and allowing for much cheaper and faster transactions while preserving decentralization. Those two things stacked on top of everything that's happened in the space before it, I think creates that moment where mainstream usable on-chain payments, self-custody products uh, are actually possible to be built and and they just simply simply weren't before. Yeah. And are you guys um, only on Ethereum on roll-ups or are you on other chains as well? Right now, the Beam wallet supports Optimism and Base, which are two two rollups uh, on top of Ethereum. Um, Base is built on the open source OP stack that Optimism created, and Base is the the L two that uh, Coinbase incubated. Um, but we're looking at adding new chains and new rollups and, and supporting different assets that our users want. So more to come on that very okay. soon. Well, that's awesome, um, Andy. This has been really fascinating. Thank you so much for just like helping me learn about account abstraction and just like talking about your background and everything. Um, I really appreciate it. Tell people how they can get Beam and and, or, and how they can find out more about what you guys are doing. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, Matt, thanks for having me. This was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Um, if people want to learn more, if you want to learn about the eco currency, I would go to eco.org. Um, if you want to try out Beam as a wallet, go to beam.eco. Um, and you can always tweet at me uh, at Andy underscore Bromberg and, uh, and happy to chat about anything we're building. All right. That's awesome. Thanks so much, Andy. And, and great, greatest of luck with everything. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us. And don't forget to rate and follow this show on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Decent People is a production of Decentral Media. It is produced by Matt Bogart with music by Brian Duncan and Kareem Imes. 